Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay. And as always, I'm here with my friend Isaac. And Isaac, I don't think it's too early to say this to you now. I hope I'm the first one to say it. Merry Christmas, man. You are the first one. You're welcome. It's Christmas. It is Christmas time. Christmas starts early at my house. Yeah, how early? We go actually probably a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. My wife will put on Christmas music. That's pretty early. Yeah, I like Christmas music. The good stuff. Yeah. Not the bad stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. A lot of bad stuff. But there's some good stuff. Yeah. Christmas is uh, more than music, though. It's more than the songs. It's more than all of that. Even though in our culture today, it feels like that's all Christmas is. And so today, um, we're talking about Christmas on a deeper level. Yeah, with Dr. Gary Brashears, head of theology at Western Seminary. And we got a a ton of good questions for him, and he's just uh, an expert on so many different things and has been so influential in so many people's lives. So yeah, Christmas with Gary Brashears. Yeah, so we're um, grateful you're listening, and uh, let's jump right in. Hey, Gary, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Good to talk to you guys. We got some uh, great Christmas conversation coming up, but before any of that, quick question. Top three theologically rich Christmas songs, according to Dr. Gary Brashears. Hmm, let me think just a second. Uh, how about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is rich. You the know, classic. You've got a red nose, you drink too much, you'll end up doing something foolish like I mean, it's theologically profound. Super biblical. Lay off the eggnog. Yep. Yeah, lay off the eggnog. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, maybe just a little bit more seriously. Uh, Charles Wesley's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, if you want to get real feisty about it, the angels actually speak. They don't sing. But other than that, it's just it's unbelievably good stuff. You know, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh dwelled Jesus, our Emmanuel. And those are that's a well-known verse. One that's not quite as well-known. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature now restore. Wow. And it's just, it's Genesis 3, Revelation 22. Incredible. All uh, it's actually, uh, you know, it's a nice uh, tune to it as well. I also like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a, a, it's just, again, it's full of stuff. It's an ancient words, ancient melody. Uh, I really like the melody. I, it appeals to me. Uh, but you get the Come Thou Rod of Jesse Free, Thine Own from Satan's Tyranny, From the Depths of Hell Thy People Save. Uh, he goes on, but it's it's uh, just this picture of Emmanuel who has come to free captive Israel. I mean, that's exactly what people are looking for and still looking for, for the people of God. Free us from captivity. It's a great call and a promise that Messiah brings. So, so good. That's actually a perfect transition to where one of the areas we wanted to touch on was the gospel writers, and the gospels are the, the four biographical accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Each one of the gospel writers believe that the story of Christmas— is a story that's a part of a much larger story. And they each introduce us to the life of Jesus in their own unique way with their own kind of distinctives. And they're doing it for a reason. So uh, if you can speak on that, how do the gospel writers see themselves telling the story of Jesus in their own particular way? And why is that important for us as readers? 
Yeah, it, uh, it's always one of those things, why do you have four gospel accounts? One would be much simpler, but in the rich diversity, we get different emphases, and it it enriches the way the story is told. Matthew is told specifically a Jewish community. Uh, Matthew begins with his genealogy with Abraham, runs it through David, and shows us that he is the one who is the promised kingly Messiah. Uh, and the whole book is arranged in five books, which reminds us of the Pentateuch. We've got Jesus going up on the mountain, receive. I mean, it's just, it's, it's Pentateuch all over again. But the thing that I find really interesting is that Matthew focuses on Joseph uh, in the way he tells his account. And Joseph is ready to follow the Jewish law, the, the Mosaic law, and divorce his wife privily in King James terminology. But he, he didn't want to embarrass her or shame her. But she's pregnant, so she's obviously not qualified for marriage. The angel shows up and says, uh, by the way, that's me, and uh, focuses on the names that he should be given. So it's Yeshua, the promised Savior, uh, Emmanuel, the Isaiah 7, 14 promise. And the fact that he focuses on Joseph, a righteous man, who proves that he's even more righteous than the demands of the Mosaic law is very gospel-oriented and picks up from that. And then John the Baptist and the wilderness temptation and so on. Mark, you know, Mr. I'm in a hurry, skips all the genealogies, skips the birth, get on with John the Baptist. Hey, I'm here. And he's off in the wilderness being tempted and we're out of here. I mean, it's just like quick. Uh, Luke, well, he's the uh, Greek physician, historically uh, deeply concerned, interviewing eyewitnesses, uh, and when he focuses in, it's much more detailed. It sounds like chronicles being rewritten. Uh, it begins with Zachariah and Elizabeth, the old priest from South Hills, or the hills south of Bethlehem. It's like, you know, nowheresville. So it's very unspecial priest goes into the temple in a once-in-a-lifetime privilege and as he's doing the ritualized sacrifice, suddenly an angel standing there in front of him kind of freaks poor Zachariah out. And I get it, you know, oh, my gosh, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, you're going to have a baby. And Zachariah, Elizabeth, old, no kid, can we think, ding, 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 Abraham, Sarah. Uh, Abraham faces God and God says, you're going to have a baby. And Abraham trusts and God says, that's righteousness. That's what I want. Zechariah gets interrupted in a ritualized uh, ceremony, and he says, I am an old man. The angel says, I am Gabriel, <laughs> conflicting identities. And because you did not believe, big context, uh, you will be silent. But when he opens up, he sings an incredible song there at the end of chapter one, fulfilling the prophecies. Mary shows up. She is the paragon of virtue. Be it unto me according to your word. I mean, it's a great response. I have no idea what this means, but I'm going for it. The birth is amazing. Uh, and the story goes on from there with Jesus showing up, uh, quoting Isaiah. So very different kind of thing. John, his genealogy, if you will, begins back in heaven with the second person of the Trinity there, the Logos of God. Uh, in no birth narrative at all, just the word became flesh, which is talking about his birth, but no details. So yeah, very different for very different purposes uh, and very rich complexity of the way the stories are told.
One of the the things that modern readers have a difficult time with is, of course, genealogies. Like, you know, you can make a joke in any church about, like, this is our favorite part of the Bible, a chapter of genealogy. But it goes to this idea that the gospel writers are telling stories in ways that we often don't uh, or may not tell stories. So you mentioned Matthew begins with the genealogy, and Luke has a genealogy. And oftentimes, skeptics will point to the differences in the genealogies, and sometimes right. Christians are pushed into a corner to try to find some some like magical resolve. But it, it's it's more profound than that. It's actually the yeah. gospel writers are doing these genealogies in a certain way on purpose. Can you That's can correct. you talk about what Matthew is doing specifically in his and Luke's, and why they're both important to understanding who this Jesus actually is? Well, the two genealogies, I mean, if I think about, if I'm going back to one of my ancestors, there's a lot of ways I can trace back my ancestry to a common ancestor, especially if that ancestor is a famous guy. Uh, I can follow different lines, and the different lines I would follow would show different emphases. And one of the issues, there's a really strange thing back in Ezekiel, it talks about a curse coming on the line of kings. And I actually, I can't remember off the top of my head whether it's, I think it's Matthew that shows how that curse is overcome. Uh, And it's actually a profound biblical theology. Uh, Matthew does one line, Luke does a different one. Uh, But the point there still is to show that this is in the line of the kingly Messiah. And he is the one who by birth heritage, as well as by anointing, is fully qualified to be the Davidic Messiah. But it paints the picture a little bit differently. Some have said one is the genealogy of Mary and the other genealogy of Joseph, which is possible. Uh, I'm That certainly could be. I'm more inclined to think the lines are probably just traced back in different ways. You know, with the genealogies, and Isaac just mentioned, our sort of in the modern world, our loss of the significance of genealogies. Um, the genealogies do a lot of things, but one of the things they do, I think, explicitly is they tell us a story. And yeah. they tell us not only the story of Jesus, but how the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and the story of Jesus really is the culmination or the fulfillment of a much larger story that has been ongoing. And when I think about Christmas for most of us today, we don't typically think that way. We're just thinking about the nativity scenes on our front yard and, oh, cute baby Jesus, and there was a Uh star, and there were three wise men, which that's a whole other thing, but like, is that in the Bible that way? And all all sorts of things like that. But I want to ask you, you've, you've done such an awesome job so far explaining some of the differences in these, um, in the way the gospel writers present, uh, the story of the birth of Jesus, I'm curious to know where do we find the story of Christmas um, and, and its place in the larger biblical story? So why is the Christmas story important, not just in and of itself, but because it is the fulfillment or culmination um, of a much larger story that has been ongoing? Can you talk about that a little bit, Gary? Everything in the Bible goes back to page one, two, and three. Uh, in in page one, God creates image-bearing covenant partners to build beautiful things here in the, in the land, and that gets subverted when the serpent shows up and uh, tempts Eve de- and into deception to believing that the best thing is for her to trust herself to define what's good, right, true, and beautiful, 
instead of trusting God to do that in terms of the tree of the knowing good and evil. And in God's response to that, when he comes, he doesn't come and scream at her. He doesn't come and preach at her. He comes and invites her to confession, starting with Adam. And then in that amazing promise in Genesis 3, 15, 14, 15, he actually doesn't begin with Eve or Adam in his words of punishment. He actually curses the serpent, who is the real enemy, of course. But then he gives that promise, that very famous promise about the uh, the hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Well, the seed of the serpent are the, are the demonic, God, demonic spiritual beings and those who worship them. The seed of the woman, well, that's us, who are the followers of, of Yahweh. And it talks about this enmity and then the promise that the that this seed of the woman, ironic because we'd think it'd be the seed of the man, uh, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. So from the very beginning, we have this promise of a, of a serpent-crushing Messiah. And that theme gets built up. Uh, we find it in Genesis 49, where it promises a scepter will not depart from between his legs. Uh, that's the kingly, uh, the kingly uh, rule symbol. So we've got this king who's going to rule righteously. And that keeps going, and we're going to have this one who's going to deliver us from the snake venom that's running in our veins and the domination of the worshipers of the snake and the demonic beings. And we've been looking for that for thousands of years. So when Jesus shows up, it's that promise, that line of redemption. So he'll redeem the people. That's that's the great hope that's coming, is we'll redeem not only from domination by evil powers like Rome or Assyria or Babylon, but also be redeemed from domination by the, the demonic gods under Satan and from our own snake venom, the sin that's in us. So it's a, it's a long-promised Messiah, as O Come, Come Emmanuel says. Mm. Yeah, so the coming of Jesus is not about a cute little baby in a manger next to the fluffy animals. Actually, he probably is a cute little baby if you want to look at it that way. However, he's much more than that. Right, much more than that. That um, in in the Christmas story, we really see the collision of these two. I mean, you just said a couple of things that I think are um, people. We probably do need to do other podcasts with Gary. You just talked about the demonic spiritual beings and gods, yeah. and then the yeah. About half the listeners are just going, <laughs> whoa, 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 get that. back, get back to the demonic spiritual powers <laughs> and the false gods. That'll be another episode with Gary. We promise. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've got a couple things to say there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do want to ask a, another thing. You mentioned though, you talked about the snake venom in our right. veins, yep. which uh, I've heard you say that before. Um, explain what you mean by that, and then how Christmas is God's sort of the entrance of the remedy to the snake venom in us. Um, talk a little bit about that, because I think it's such an important part of the story. Yeah. Well, again, going to Genesis 3, when Eve is deceived and trusts her own eyes, when she looks at the tree and says, just like all the other trees, and it'll make me wise— so she doesn't trust God and says it's a dangerous tree to trust herself and says, like all the other trees, and probably better, uh, when she eats of that tree, uh, it blasts out the relationship with God. And the outcome of that is a breaking of our humanity because we're made for that deep covenant trusting relationship with Yahweh, the head creator of heaven and earth. 
And when that's broken, because that's absolutely essential to humanity, everything is impacted by that. So I use snake venom in our veins metaphorically. I don't mean there's literal venom or something like that. But that's that I'll define for myself what's right and wrong. And it's a brokenness in us that runs there all the time. And what he's done is come to end that by restoring the relationship with Jesus through forgiveness of sin, the covering of our shame, the washing away of the dirtiness and defilement that comes from involvement in sin and evil in this world. And that's what Messiah has come to do. So we can rebuild that relationship with God. And then out of that, we can rebuild the relationship with each other and truly fulfill the idea of love God and love neighbor and build this new community of where generosity and faithfulness and justice are characteristic. The idea of that snake venom running through our veins um, is, is, a, is a powerful image, and it's one that yeah. also is simultaneously, I think, um, one that easily offends the modern mind. So modern people don't like being told, like, like the worst thing you could do to a person is say, well, you're a sinner. Um, and as Christians, we know, what that, we, we know what that means. We get the story. But yeah. essentially, the start of our big story, page three, is that every single human being, we've all contributed to the disruption of this beautiful world that God created for human flourishing. Um, and although it's an offensive message to the modern mind, for Christians, it's, it's essential. You, me, everybody. We've mm. all looked at God and, and defied him. We've, we've usurped him. We've wanted to sit on the throne. Um, and that snake venom runs through our vein. And so Chris, the, our veins, the Christmas story is this awesome news that, that, that God is, is seeking us from heaven. He seeks us and wants to forgive and graciously um, adopt us back into his family. So somehow Christians have to learn to, to tell that bad and good news in a way that's, a, that's effective. And I think yep. the way you're doing it using metaphor is very powerful. Yep. What I do when I think about that is I, I talk to a lot of different people, of course, like you guys do. Uh, and what I ask uh, is I, I try to go through and I ask people, what are you afraid of and where do you hurt? I've yet to talk to a person that isn't afraid of stuff and doesn't hurt. Well, that's snake venom. I mean, they don't look at it. I've got a broken relationship with God as the source of that, uh, although some of them do. Uh, but we, I begin at that level, and uh, and then out of that, I'll often say, well, you know, do you believe in a God of some sort? And almost everybody will agree yes, without specifying that it is. And I just say, well, how's your relationship with God? And almost inevitably, the answer I'll get will be a variation on, well, it's not as good as it could be. Okay, there we go. Already, we're talking about relationship with God. Introduce God through Jesus. And we're in the gospel conversations. Yeah. You know, um, Gary, in our modern context, when we think about Jesus, the Son of God, coming in the form of a tiny human newborn baby, hmm. there's a tendency, as there is with most things in our culture, to personalize and to say, man, this is all, you know, when we hear the word Emmanuel, God with us, the sort of modern Western mind immediately wants to personalize it and say, man, that means God knows 
my problems, God knows my fears, and God is with me mm-hmm. personally, which is all 100% true. That's correct. But it's not complete. There's more, this whole idea of Emmanuel, the fact that the God of the universe is in this tiny little cave born to this unwed mother and um, this, you know, this dad who is a righteous man. That means more than just the personal God knows me personally. Like you're saying, it is the culmination of this war that has been going on since the beginning of time. And um, I'm wondering, what is the significance of the fact that the story does indeed begin with the coming of a child? Because it's not just in the Gospels. When we read, you know, Isaac just did, is doing a series, I think, through the book of Isaiah. And we have these beautiful words in Isaiah chapter 9. And when you read around Isaiah chapter 9 and the preceding chapters and the chapters that follow, it's it's the words of anguish and turmoil and war and violence and oppression. And in the midst of it, in in verse 6, I think, we have this this light that breaks into that darkness and the words are for to us, a child is born. There seems to be something significant that this God, our God, um, overthrows violence and oppression and the war that is being waged between human beings and between the servant, uh, between the serpent and humans and, and between the serpent and God that there is, um, a significance to that, that God is going to overthrow that, through the coming of a child. When I look at the way of the serpent, it's all through power and deception and accumulation of wealth, those kinds of things. Basically, what's in it for me is the narrative. And that makes a lot of sense. Because if I don't protect me, who will? Uh, And when God comes, he comes in a very different perspective. He says, we're going to relate to each other and we're going to come with other-centered, justice-based relationship. And by coming as a child who's incredibly vulnerable, and of course he's attacked right away by Herod who's trying to kill him, uh, that's a way of saying how God is going to do this work. It's not through exercise of power and raw uh, nuclear bombs or something like that, military might. He's going to under He's going to overcome evil through the sacrifice of the cross through the doing of good through the building of peace i I have a personal picture very rich i was teaching in beirut lebanon uh, a while back and it's the only place in the world where muslim background believers in isa jesus uh, can come together to study in a christian school because if you're in other arab-speaking countries they're muslim and you, uh, somebody who's Muslim by identity cannot go to a Christian school, except in Lebanon. So I had people coming in from all over the Arab-speaking world. And one night we had been teaching, and we walked up to the residence place to have snacks before I continued my very long class. And as we were walking back down, I heard these guys laughing back behind me. And I turned around, and here is a North Sudanese Arab and a South Sudanese African. And if you know anything about that part of the world, those are violent enemies. They're regularly, we've all heard of Darfur probably, where they're bombing the daylights out of each other. And here's these two guys, an Arab from Khartoum and a South Sudanese from Juba. 
and they've got their arms around each other and they're laughing outrageously, that's what Jesus does. And it's because they come with peace like a little baby instead of military power dropping bombs to dominate somebody else. That's the way of Jesus. Wow. Dude, powerful. So, so good. Yeah. God, God comes to, to fight a war and he uses weapons that are unlike any weapons we exactly. have used. Or if we're honest with ourselves, with the snake venom running through our veins, we don't want to use those weapons. That's but true. In, in the paradox of Christianity, you can lose your life and find it. Um, yeah. And the last shall yeah. be first and the first shall be last. The servant comes to, to wage war with the serpent, but he comes as a servant. Exactly. And I like the wordplay you just used there. Are we going to be the way of the servant or the way of the serpent? And I hope we come the way of love and serve instead of serpentish dominate and cruelty. As we kind of look to the practical, Gary, can we, we all see kind of the values of Christmas that are displayed, you know, in, in kind of the secular square. Um, it's a time of presence and sharing and giving. And we affirm all those things, sharing, giving, generosity, um, being with family members. Those are all good things. So sometimes Christians get a rep of being like, bah humbug, you need to center on the cross this <laughs> Christmas. We, we affirm all those things. Those are good. But at the heart of the Christmas story and the scriptures, what are the, the values that come straight from that, that story that as Christians, we should be celebrating this, this time of year? Uh, so Herod and the chief priest and the political powers and the religious powers and all the wealthy guys, none of them come to meet the king of the universe. It's a group of stinking shepherds, the equivalent of you know, our homeless schizophrenics or somebody like that as far as social status. And then a bunch of guys from North Korea come to visit the king of the universe. And the goal, of course, is for us to welcome the king of the universe who comes in a rather unattractive way. It's losing your life in order to save it. It's the way of servanthood, not the way of accumulation of riches. It's the way of generosity. Uh, will we welcome this king? And of course, that's the Advent season is will we welcome the newborn king? Uh, so when I think of, you're talking about Christmas, and yeah, I like Christmas. We've got a Christmas tree up, and when my grandkids come over, we'll play games and all have candy and cookies and all those things, and go see Star Wars, of course. Yes. Uh, the, uh, but the, I, what I want is I don't want to, I don't want to have too much Christmas and not enough Advent. Because Christmas is celebrating Christmas trees and, you know, candy canes and such, and, and that's good. We've got to, it's got to center around Advent. So I want to have plenty of Christmas, but I don't want it to all focus on Advent, the coming of Emmanuel. That's good. And maybe w one last question, and maybe you can encourage our listeners. Um, Jay and I are both, we serve in the local church, and so we love the local church, and we know tons of people love this season, but also there are tons of people who the Christmas season is, is, is difficult from yeah. loss of loved ones to loneliness, to isolation. I mean, it's just a time when depression is, is thick. And so the Christmas story takes place in the context of Israel waiting for their hope to be fulfilled. Yeah. They, they know what it's like to be oppressed. They know what it's like to suffer. So how does the Christmas story truly give hope to those who are the brokenhearted? Well, let's see Isaiah 61 that Jesus comes preaching when he comes to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He brings the, the oil of gladness for the heaviness of mourning 
Uh, and so when we do our, this year, Christmas Sunday is Christmas Eve. And I don't know what you guys are doing, but we'll have a candlelight service uh, at our regular time. So we have four services starting at eight o'clock and going through two o'clock. So we'll be all day in our building and everyone will be a candlelight service. To remember the light of the world is a feeble, easy to blow out, but really hard to blow out. And we'll have a place where people are sad, you know, somebody who's without a, a husband for the very first time because he died of a heart attack back in July. I'm thinking of, of, of a guy, in our, a woman in our church, Lori, I hope will be there because Jack is with Jesus now and she's down here with her kids alone. Super hard. Uh, and we're at a place where people can sit in this candlelight service and bawl their eyes out and be welcomed and comforted and held. And others who are filled with joy can laugh and the two can be together and it both stimulate the other to remember the majesty and the diversity that what Jesus brings into our world and that we can comfort each other, hold each other in uh be sad together. You don't have to put on a happy face to come to Christmas service at our church. I doubt it's yours either. This is a place where we bring whatever we bring to the Messiah who comes to meet us. So you look at the the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. You know, it's the poor in spirit. It's the hungry. It's the it's the lost. It's the so he's not coming just to the good guys. He's coming to the full range of people to bring us together in that one community where we can sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, you know, I we don't usually do this on the podcast, but I, we're, we're releasing this podcast right before Christmas, and um, I just can't help but think maybe there's somebody who's listening who that was what they needed, just those last few words. And I hope that the entirety of the story encourages you. Because, Gary, what you just said um, the hope that we find there for those who are celebrating in this season, as well as those who are really mourning in this season and everyone in between, the hope that we can all land on and, and meet at together is the hope that the Messiah has come and the story is changed now forever um, yeah. and that the serpent is defeated and that victory is ours and that death is not the end. And we don't often, you know, we think about those things often at Easter, but not so much at Christmas, but it's all a part of the same unfolding story. Um, so thank you so much for that, Gary. You're welcome. I'd love to be with you guys. So deeply appreciate not just your time with us today, but your work um, over your lifetime and the ways in which you have so incredibly moved the mission of the church forward um, in exponential ways. So thank you so much for your time and for your work. My privilege. Oh man, Dr. Gary Brashears is the guru. He's always got such great stuff to say, and um, I hope that you guys found that helpful. Isaac, uh, what are some of your concluding thoughts? There was something that uh, Gary said when he was talking about the Gospel of Matthew that was really profound. He mentioned that Joseph goes above and beyond the Mosaic law in his treatment of his future bride, Mary. And just, I mean, if you're on Twitter, any social media lately, you, you know there's just an uproar of this horrific story after horrific story of sexual abuse, sexual harassment, the treatment of women. And I just think that it's incredibly profound that when God the Father chooses to send his son into the world, the type of man that he picks to raise him is Joseph. And Joseph is a man who honors his, his bride. 
Jesus grows up in a household with a man who honors women, who honors his mother, and does everything he can to protect her, not just only physically, but her, her reputation. And so when God picks his son's dad, he picks a man who cares for women and honors women. And that is a, a not a, normally a Christmas message, but probably a Christmas message that the world is in desperate need of hearing. This is the type of man that God approves of. Yeah, that's really powerful, really timely. Um, and there's so many other pieces of the story that we can talk about. And if nothing else, our hope is that this episode um, just drives you and encourages you and provokes you to dig into the scriptures. I mean, that's something we're trying to do every time we we get together to talk, that um, we develop and help you develop a love for the Bible. The stories are just so rich. Incredible. And, uh, they've got to be read at, at a deeper level than just surface. And so... Um, as always, thank you guys for listening. And uh, this, like we say all the time, we don't want this to be a monologue. We want it to be a dialogue. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to stay connected with you. Uh, the Regeneration Project is more than just our podcast. We do events. We post articles and interviews. And um, you can find all of the information for that on our website at regenerationproject.org. Uh, and you can follow us on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter at Rgen Project and on Instagram at Regeneration Project. Um, we also uh, want to say thank you to our partner, Western Seminary, a wonderful seminary, not only in Portland, but they've got campuses all over the West Coast, and they've been a tremendous partner with us on this journey. So thank you to Western Seminary. If you're looking for um, a biblical education at a wonderful seminary, check out Western Seminary. And finally, if you have any ideas or thoughts or even questions about anything that we're doing here at the Regeneration podcast um, you can always contact us you can email us at uh, podcast at regenerationproject.org and we would love to hear from you guys um, thank you guys so much for listening it's been a fantastic start to the podcast a fantastic 2017 and uh, merry christmas to you all and we will talk to you all very soon